Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Like a Street Photography Collective. I'm Ricky, and today's guest is Brad Husick. So thank you once again for taking the time out of your day and being a guest on the show, giving the listener something to listen to. So please introduce yourself, where you're at, where you've been, what you do, anything you'd like the world to know. Well, thanks, Ricky. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad that you invited me to come on the podcast. Um, I, let's see. There's a, there's a lot to cover. I, I think I can start with a little background on myself. Um, I'm a lifelong photographer. I'm actually a fourth-generation photographer in my family. Um, the brief story behind that is that my great-great-grandfather came from Russia to the United States through Ellis Island in New York and settled in Manhattan mm-hmm. and got a job as, as a photo engraver at a place called Sterling Engraving in Manhattan. And for those of you who don't know what photo engraving is, um, it's, it's the way that they used to put photographs in books. So they would create um, metal prints um, that they would be etched with acid and then they would apply ink to it and um, create really, really detailed photographs in, in printed books. Mm-hmm. So my great, great, I'm sorry, my great grandfather, his name was Charles, came to the U S and got a job there. And his son, um, Leo, uh, got a, also got a job at Sterling engraving and was a photographer for his whole life. And then he passed that on to my dad, who was named Charles after his grandfather. And my dad was a lifelong photographer. Um, when he was young, he used to take pictures of kids at summer camp and sell the prints, um, you know, do them in his own dark room and sell the prints and pay for his, his gear and his, his film and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then my dad taught me darkroom techniques starting when I was five. So every house we ever lived in, we would build a darkroom. And, um, he taught me how to do black and white processing. And I started taking pictures when I was a kid. Um, I think my first camera was a Kodak Instamatic 126. And I still have a couple of the photographs from that when we went to Disneyland for the first time. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I took, I took photographs my whole life. Um, when I was in high school, I used to go to rock concerts and take photos of the band. Um, and I just sort of walk up to the front of the stage and pretend I was somebody, um, and, you know, take my, my gear up there and take photos of the band. And then I, I do them at home and I'd make prints and I'd sell them to my classmates who, who, you know, who liked. So I, I, I photographed Boston and journey and sticks and Kansas and, you know, all kinds of progressive rock bands. Um, uh, and then I, you know, I, I've done photography as a hobby my whole life. Um, and I actually got to turn it into a profession about a decade ago when I became a professional sports photographer Mm -hmm. and I was the team photographer for, um, an indoor lacrosse professional indoor lacrosse team here in Seattle where I live. Um, called the Washington Stealth. So I was team photographer for the Stealth for three years, and they actually won the world championship while I was team photographer. 
I, I got, I got a lot of great memories from that. Um, and I got to do all the marketing photographs and the posters and all, all kinds of stuff for that. And obviously as a sports photographer, I was, I was shooting a lot of different gear. Um, and I, I must've switched back and forth, you know, Canon, Nikon, Canon, Nikon, eventually Sony. Yeah. Um, I knew it was coming. And, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. And every time, every time I had this whole library of lenses, you know, that I'd have to, I'd have to sell and buy the, buy the other library of lenses. Right. Um, and so, you know, passion, it's been a passion of mine for my whole life is being a photographer. And I've tried doing every type of photography I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my college degree is actually in astrophysics. Um, and my thesis work, um, and my senior year was actually on Halley's Comet the last time that Halley's Comet passed Earth. And I actually have photos and video from Halley's Comet. Um, nice. So, yeah, photography's been, been a part of my life for my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah. I, um, you were going kind of the Jim Marshall way. Band, photography, and then you went sports photography. You got a nice little journey there. <clears throat> if you had to choose... Between those two, which one would you say is your favorite? Oh, wow. Oh, just between band photography and sports, huh? Yeah. Um, just for now. You know, e- each of them has has a really different feel, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're a band photographer, so a, a friend of mine um, went on tour with Seal um, and and did, he was Seal's photographer for, for one of Seal's tours. Yeah. And... Uh, and he took, with a Leica, um, you know, he took photos of Seal, you know, throughout the tour. And one of those photos actually ended up being the cover image on Seal's next album. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- when I talked to him about it, it was really cool to be part of the team, you know, part of the, the traveling team on, on tour. Um, and have permission from the artist yeah. to be you know, to, to get behind the scenes and be intimate mm-hmm. with the subject and, and not just the somebody standing behind a microphone, but you know, all the things that lead up to a performance, right. And follow a performance. Yeah. So I think if I, if I could do that, Ricky, if I had the permission of the band and I, I was sort of part of the team, you know, part of the crew, mm-hmm. I think I'd really enjoy that because I, I love photographing people. Yeah. It's my favorite thing to photograph and you can get up close and personal and really intimate with the subjects. Mm-hmm. If, if you're part of the team, yeah. Sport, sports photography is a whole different animal. Um, as, as you know, it should be obvious. I, I was fortunate enough that I, I knew the owners of the team. I, I had their permission to go everywhere and, and see everything before, during and after the games. And I was friends with many of the players. And so I got access, you know, not just here's the great shot or here's the great, um, the great save, mm-hmm. um, in a game, but you know, I got access, uh, behind the scenes. And to me, that was even more interesting photographically than the game itself. Yeah. Cause I, I used to take in an average game, I used to take 2000 to 3000 photographs. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> you gotta... and my job, my job was to, to, to take 
you know, the games would end like nine thirty at night mm-hmm. and on a Friday night. And my job was to pick my, my 10 hero shots before midnight, basically. So I'd have to, I'd have to drive home, load up my images, find my 10 hero shots and then get them loaded on the website the same night as the game. Yeah. So the fans could enjoy. So I got really good at, 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 you know, weeding out my photos and finding the ones I love. Um, I I got a question on that one. Uh, cause everyone, I know when I first started taking, like I used to do maternity photos. I still do occasionally, but not so much now. Um, but there was couples that they wanted so many photos. Sometimes I take like a thousand photos and, I decided after that one time I wouldn't I would never take that much again because it was too too many for me to go through and they want every single photo you take. I'm like, why do you need a thousand photos? You're only going to use like one. But so I yeah. know the challenge from actually trying to go through so many photos. But I'm sure, as you said, you got so good at it. How long did it take you before you can actually just kind of skim through the thumbnails and pick out your ten best ones? What were the characteristics you looked for particularly? Yeah, it's a great question, Ricky. Um, so it, so I, I was using Lightroom as my, you know, photo manager basically. Mm-hmm. And I would display, all, you know, all the thumbnails in a grid, it may be three by four grid on, on my screen. And I would, I would just use my keyboard. I would forget about the mouse. I'd use my keyboard and I just use the right and left arrow keys to go to the next photo and the previous photo. Mm-hmm. And then I would use the P button on the keyboard to pick the photos, put a little white flag, um, um, and pick the photos that I wanted to consider as my, you know, as my 10 best. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the first, uh, the first pass, I might pick 50 out of 2000. Um, but that's okay. Cause I could do a second pass yep. of those 50. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got, I got to the point, Ricky, where I could go to, I could go through 2000 photos in less than 30 minutes. That's good. Um, and, and really, you know, to me, the second part of your question is really interesting, which is how do you know, right? How do you know which the keepers are, right? And it turns out that in, for me in sports photography, so the, my sport was indoor lacrosse, um, which is very much like NHL hockey. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's played on a hockey rink without the ice. Okay. So it's, it's very similar to shooting hockey. And, you know, although the, you know, the, the shot of, you know, the, the, the puck going into the net is the one you, you think you want all the time, mm-hmm. it, it turns out that those are often not the most interesting shots, right? They, I mean, they work well on video, but not on photographs. The, the ones that worked out really well for me were the ones where you could really tell what the emotion was like. So for me, it was about the faces. Mm-hmm. It was about what was, what was the look of determination on that athlete's face or what was that moment of joy after the goal when he was celebrating with his teammates yeah. and they, you know, they all gave each other high fives and you know, it, it was, it was the emotional moments of the game mm-hmm. that were really the keepers that people loved. And it, it wasn't restricted to the, the players. It was also among the fans. So I'd often turn my camera around and, and take fan photos yeah. of people, you know, people angry about, you know, a missed shot or angry about a referee call or, 
um, jubilant about a goal or, you know, just rocking out to the music or whatever it might be, or, you know, you know, leaning, leaning over and kissing your girlfriend or, you know, whatever it might be in the, um, going on emotionally in, in that game. Okay. So I'm not saying you hated your job, but I'm, I'm kind of curious now because I've experienced this where I felt like I was just so tired of making photos that sometimes I would just go and pick whatever and, and not even care. Have you ever felt that way? Like, was there ever one day where you were just so tired and burnt out that it was like, I'm just going to pick these 10 photos and I don't care what they are. Have you ever experienced that? Or is that just me? So I, I'd have to say, Ricky, I, I loved my three years mm -hmm. working for the team. I just loved it. Okay. It's because of the relationship I had with the team. So I cared about these guys Okay. and I cared about, the, I cared about the management um, cause they cared about the players and I cared about, I mean, they even had a dance team, you know, like a cheerleading team, you know, and I cared about like, their, them because they were working hard and they weren't getting paid very much. Mm. Um, so I really, I, I took a lot of pride in what I did. I wasn't getting paid a lot of money for it. Mm. Um, but I, I loved what I did. And when, when the team, I mean, the only reason I stopped doing that is the team actually relocated to another city. Okay. Um, so I, I really did enjoy the whole process. Yeah. I mean, there were sometimes, there were sometimes that it was a lot of work. So for example, um, the team would hand out posters, uh, to the fans as, as giveaways. Right. Um, so one would be like the team photo. Another poster would be a, a photo of all the dancers, all the cheerleaders. Right. So that one was the most challenging actually, because I had to make it one poster with all of the dancers on it. And as you know, you can't properly light an individual from head to toe mm -hmm. when they're in a group. Yeah. Right. So I had to set up a green screen at the arena and they would, and I'd photograph them one by one. And so I'd have to photograph uh, each of the dancers one by one and then composite all of them together in, in Photoshop mm -hmm. in two rows. Yeah. Right. So I have a row of eight and then another row of eight behind them. And that would all be composited in Photoshop. And, you know, my file was like three gigabytes in size. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but each one of those dancers that I had in the photograph had to be perfect. Yeah. Right. So perfect lighting, perfect skin. I had to, you know, fix any blemishes, any, any little folds in an elbow or something or what, you know, they just all had to be perfect. So, I had to put all that together. First, I'd have to shoot it, which would take all day. Then I have to put the poster together. And by the time I was done putting the, the words on it and everything, I, I had 40 hours of work yeah. in, into this poster. Um, and the results were, you know, were well received, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it was a lot of work. And there were some nights, Ricky, that I was working on that poster and, Change, you know, fixing things pixel by pixel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, like a little blemish on on a cheek or something. And I, you know, pixel <laughs> by pixel. There were there were nights when I was like, yeah, is this really worth all this effort? Mm -hmm. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah, like th those moments because I've had customers like that too, where I'll spend hours. You know, like you said, they have to be nice, slim arms, and they can't have that bump. 
and and I would yeah. do it, and they're like, no, no, I don't, I don't like it like this. Try doing it like this, and like for me, after so long, I'm just I don't. I was like, you know what, like I'm gonna do it because you're paying, but I there was just a part where I was like, this is just too much, and it was too much for me, and that's kind of why I I strayed away from it, and and now it's like you're gonna take what I give you. If not, then uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I know that's not yeah. very professional of me, but I'm telling you, people can get very uh, demanding at times, and then and they don't want to pay that's extra. Absolutely. Right? Obviously, time is the most valuable resource in the world, and some people can yeah. be really cheap. But I'm sorry to mean to go down that rabbit hole. Um, I get it; you mm-hmm. love your job. It's it does sound amazing and interesting. Uh, would it be safe to say if that team didn't move away, you would still be in that position? Uh, that's a great question. I would say that I would have stuck with the team as long as they wanted to stick with me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, because of the personalities okay. and the friends and the friendship I made. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it, life is a series of different adventures. Oh yeah. And, you know, change makes things interesting. So maybe it was fortunate that I didn't have to do that mm-hmm. professionally, you know, after my three years. And I, and I went on and did other stuff photographically. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I sort of look at life as a series of different adventures. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's really good. Uh, so now we, we got you uh, starting off young photography going to Disney with your Kodak Instamatics, correct? We got yeah. you Jim Marshall apprentice. Now we got you sports photographer. What is the next part in your book of photography? Where are you at now? Where am I at now? Um, so like, like I said earlier, Ricky, I, I've tried many different types of photography. Mm-hmm. I've tried landscape photography. Um, I've, I've done travel, a lot of travel photography. I was fortunate enough that I've, I traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've done portraiture. I've done wildlife photography. Um, I have stories about each one of these, but um, I, I, I like to challenge myself and, and see, you know, what's it all about, right? I've done macro photography. I've done um, street photography. Um, color black and white. So I, I, I like to spread it around and see what, see what's possible. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you that, um, I, I find the most joy out of photographs, both, both looking at photographs and taking photographs that include people's faces. Okay. To, to me, there's nothing more interesting in this world than a person's face. And from any walk of life, from any country, from any background, um, faces tell stories. Mm-hmm. And the most interesting photographs to me are, are photographs that tell a story. Um, they don't just commemorate a moment in time. Um, you know, there's a, there's a place, I think, for photographs that just commemorate the fact that you were, you were somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, they just, basically, they're just memories of being somewhere. It's fine um, to take photographs like that. Um, those photographs may be interesting to you, but they may not be interesting to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that I found 
most interesting to me that I haven't taken are those photographs that have people's faces in them. And whether it's a, you know, whether it's a formal portrait, one, one of my favorite photographers, portrait photographers is a gentleman named Yosef Karsh. Um, and Karsh was an Armenian photographer who, who uh, came to the United States and Karsh was a black and white portrait photographer. And he took some really famous portraits. Mm-hmm. Um, may, maybe the most famous one of them was his portrait of Winston Churchill, who's kind of leaning on a chair and has this angry scowl on his face. Mm-hmm. And the story behind that photograph is that um, Joseph Karsh had him in a studio and um, had the, all the lighting set up and often, often didn't actually look through the camera. He, he had a, a shutter release, a wired release, and he would be interacting with the subject instead of hiding behind a camera. Mm-hmm. And the story is he wasn't getting what he wanted out of Winston Churchill and he wasn't getting the look he wanted. So he actually walked up to Churchill and grabbed his cigar out of his hand and stole his cigar. <laughs> and the moment he stole that cigar, Churchill gave him this scowl and that's when he took the picture. And, and that's, um, it's a magical picture of Churchill. It just tells you everything you need to know about the man. Yeah. So I find the most personal satisfaction out of challenging myself to take pictures of people that are interesting pictures that tell a story. Yeah. Are you familiar with the work of, I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but he's a Greek photographer, Platon, Platon world famous. He does like every, head of state worldwide and he shoots on film, but it looks digital. I think I may have seen some of his photographs. Yeah. You, you probably, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I always use this reference cause I saw in a, in a commercial like you may not know who the, the artist is, but you know, their, their work. Um, right. The, I call it the Jim Marshall effect because it, that's exactly right. what it was like for me. Like I've seen all his iconic images of musicians, but I didn't, I never knew who the man was. Uh, but I'm sure if you look, if you've seen one of his images, you're like, oh, yeah, I have seen his work. But he's also a, a really good, I like to say street photography only because it's not in a studio setting. So uh, I know there's a right. lot of people going in different directions with the term street photography now. Some people don't like calling it that. But I say it because it's not in the studio. So he's actually a, a really good street photographer as well. Uh, there's an episode on uh, Netflix. It's kind of like uh, art artists from all kinds but he's that he has the only photography episode so i watched it because okay. of that, and it's actually really good um he talks about his approach and it's really similar like the emotion is what makes my photos so um powerful and like he gets close with his little hasselblad and he shoots, yeah. he still shoots 120 film and he's got like a whole process yeah. it's amazing another another um photographer i really love his work is gary winogrand mm-hmm yeah. Right. And, and he's often synonymous with street photography. Um, and, and that's, you know, that emotion, when, when a photograph tells a story, it's something I think you can revisit over and over and over again and learn something new from looking at that photograph every time you see it. Yeah. Right. Um, like the photographs of, many of the photographs of Henri Cartier-Bresson who happened to shoot with a Leica. Um, 
And, you know, many of his photographs, in fact, most of his photographs are not even in focus. Mm-hmm. And yet um, they're so compelling because of the composition and capturing that moment that will never come again. Yeah. And I, I think it's that, it's that capturing the moment for me that actually turned me away from certain other kinds of photography, mm-hmm. Ricky. Yeah. So in landscape photography, for example, you know, we've all seen some super beautiful landscape photos. Um, there are some really, really talented and, and what I would call very patient mm-hmm. landscape photographers. But if you look at the, if you look at the photographs, um, they are absolutely beautiful, but I, I would often ask myself if I had enough time and enough patience, could I replicate that photo? Mm-hmm. You know, could I be there when the weather is perfect? Could I be there when the sun was just at the right angle? And to me, it was a question of as long as you're a, an accomplished photographer, did you have enough patience to to make that photograph, yeah. to be there to make that photograph. And I have friends who are landscape, you know, really talented landscape photographers. And they take days sometimes to get the sun in just the right place oh, yeah. to make that photo. Um, the same was true for me, Ricky, with, with wildlife photography. Um, I, I, I got to take a, a course from a photographer named Moose Peterson. I don't know if, if that's a name that's familiar to you. I have not um, heard of him until now. Moose, I mean, what a great name um, for, by the way, sorry about the, the, uh, the oh, sounds in the background. It's all right. I apologize. Um, you know, Moose, what a great name for a wildlife photographer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, his name's actually Moose. Um, so Moose uh, is, is an amazing wildlife photographer. Um, long lenses, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, birds and bears and you, you name it. He's got wonderful photographs. And I, and I went on a, a class basically with him in down into Utah, into um, Bryce Canyon and um, some of the other really ama- amazing places in Utah. And, you know, we, we ended up taking some really great photos. Um, I also used to, go once a year up to the Skagit river Valley in North of about an hour North of Seattle. And that's where the bald eagles would migrate, um, once a year. So in January in the you know, middle of winter, I used to take a 400 or 500 or 600 millimeter lens and go up with a big tripod mm-hmm. and, and freeze my tail off uh, <laughs> by standing at the river's edge. Yeah and taking photographs of eagles who would come by the hundreds and fish for salmon out of the Skagit river and, you know, get that shot of the eagle, like cruising down just inches off the water, talons at the ready, mm-hmm. grabbing that fish right out of the, out of the river. Um, and for a while I, you know, I enjoyed that. I actually think I enjoyed it because I took friends with me um, and, and we got to do it together. And after a while, I was like, well, all right, so I got some great eagle photographs. I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> it's too cold. I, it, it was sort of, I reached the goal, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, so for me, it's, 
you know, it, it's, is it a challenge? Um, does it remain a challenge? Um, will I ever master it? And the hardest thing in the world for me was to learn how to take pictures of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have a story about, um, how I started doing that. If you're interested. Yeah, we will get into that. I, I got a question now. Cause you, uh, you mentioned the, um, the unfocused photos of the great Henry Cartier-Bresson. And I would like to know your opinion on why people feel that their photos, if they're not in focus now, they're not good. Oh yeah. That's a big debate, Ricky. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, where was the disconnect, right? Cause Henry Cartier-Bresson, one of, if not the greatest photographer of, I would say the century. Uh, like you said, his photos weren't always in focus, but they were great. He got the moment. He did his geometry, did his composition. They were great. Yeah. But now people are throwing away what could be potentially amazing photos because they're not in focus. And like, I even signed up and I'm taking a course with NYIP. And like one of their biggest things is it has to be in focus. If it's not in focus, it's a horrible photo. And like the whole mindset about being a creative person, it kind of, that, that thought just strips that away from you, right? Like you can't be creative. I can't be a photographer if my image is in focus. So I, I, I have to disagree, right? I, I think that a great photograph can be a great photograph and not be in focus. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and the evidence is clear, right? Yeah. The Ari Cartier-Bresson pictures. Now, I, as to why that's the case, I have a theory about that. And my theory is that the advent of digital photography mm-hmm. and the widespread use of computers changed the landscape. It changed the situation. And as soon as we had big monitors in front of us, and we stopped looking at prints, at physical prints. Yes. Which you don't typically look at a physical print inches away from the print, right? You're not pixel peeping yeah. print. Prints are meant to be displayed on a wall or potentially in a book. But you're standing a meter away, typically, mm-hmm. or more from a print admiring that print, taking in the print, taking in the whole image. Yeah. And then if you're interested, you can of course approach more closely and study the detail in that print. But for the longest time, I mean, for, okay, so photography has been around for almost, we're coming up on 200 years of photography. Mm-hmm. Early 1800s was really the birth. So you're, you're coming up on almost 200 years of photography for the first 150 years of that digital didn't exist. So, you know, I I shot my first digital picture in 1998 Mm -hmm. on a Sony, uh, a little Sony camera. Um, we didn't start pixel peeping until around the year 2000. And now I think pixel peeping has become an obsession with people. So does it make a great photograph if it's in focus? No, nobody would say, oh, that photograph's in focus, therefore it's great. Yeah. 
So I believe the contrary, which is just because it's out of focus doesn't mean it's not a great photograph. Yeah. Phil Penman is a, is a very great photographer, modern photographer who's excellent at that. And like you, I disagree with that whole concept. A lot of the direction on where I'm going, you can't even see my subject. It's, and I enjoy making these style photographs now where like, yeah, there's a time and place where my focus, my, my subject needs to be in focus, but not always now, right? It's all about how you portray your creativity. So I think we need to go through a little bit of photography rules rewriting. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, there are, there are exceptions, mm-hmm. right? If you're taking, if you're taking a wildlife photograph, yeah. the eyes of that animal, they have to be in focus mm-hmm. because you're studying that picture for a different reason, right? I mean, if the eyes aren't in focus on, on that Eagle, you know, our, our brains operate in a certain way as we look at, as we look at photographs yeah. and it, I don't care what kind of photograph it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but our, we are hardwired to process, visually process a photograph mm-hmm. in a certain order. And I talk, I talk about this when I work with my, my students because part of what I do is I teach for Leica Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, when I talk to my students about a photograph has to tell a story, I also say a photograph needs to be a journey for the eye. Your, your eye has to make some sort of journey around and inside that photograph. And it's up to you as the photographer to specify what that journey should be for the viewer. So our brains are hardwired in certain ways. Mm-hmm. If there is a face, a human face in a photograph, we are hardwired to look at that face first before anything else. Yeah. And in fact, inside the face, we're hardwired to look at the eyes. We just do. That's the kind of animal we are. Mm -hmm. And we just, and you can watch yourself do this as you look at photographs. Once we get a a gauge, once we get a a view of that face, we can then move on to other parts of the photograph. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're all familiar with the concept of leading lines in photos. You know, we're all familiar with those kinds of things, but we are hardwired to look at faces followed by areas of high brightness mm-hmm. in an image, followed by areas of high color saturation, if it's a color photograph, followed by leading lines and other elements. It's just the way we're built. Yeah. And when we understand what the psychology is of looking at photographs, of consuming photographs, then we can become better photographers because we're responsible for prescribing what that journey for the eye needs to be. Mm-hmm. And, and the most powerful photographs lead you on a, lead your eyes on a journey around that photo. And that journey is typically in some sort of a circle clockwise or counterclockwise. And you end up back at the start. And then you can start that journey over again. The second time you, you look at that photograph. Mm-hmm. So I work a lot with my, my students on, on that aspect of composition. Yeah. And it's not just random. It's, I think what's even, even in street photography, it's what separates really interesting street photos from really boring ones. Mm-hmm. 
Are you familiar with the term faceless portrait? Faceless portrait. I'm not, Ricky. Tell me more about that. Uh, I didn't come up with this concept, and I saw it on a like a conversation with Arthur Meyerson, who's uh, an amazing photographer, great person. Um, I would, I don't like. I said I didn't. I didn't create or coin the term, but I heard the term and it just sticks in there. I would tell you to watch the episode, and it would it can probably explain it better than I could. I don't want to do it injustice, so. Um, that's the most, as most as I can give you on that. Uh, sorry, but introducing yeah, the terms. Yeah, but you should, it's, I think that was one of my favorite, one of the favorite videos I've seen from like a conversations is Arthur Meyerson's, um, the journey, the color of journey, something like that. It's really good. Yeah. I recommend it to everybody. I actually took away so much information from that video and i i'm not sure if you've been following me a long time but i have a little book and i write down like little bits of information that i really really enjoy and like and yes from that one hour video i probably took the most information away from it and that was one of the the terms great i'm looking forward to learning more about that yeah. I, I i've got students who've taken uh classes from myerson mm-hmm. um and, and really enjoy them yeah, he, so, he just sold his that. studio and years and years of amazing photographs. So he's, a, I believe, in the process of relocating to create more. So uh, yeah, I, I, Great. I, I speak with him every now and then on, on Instagram. Great, friendly fellow. Nice. nice. Yeah. Who would you say is your most favorite photographer? Because uh, I wanted to ask you earlier when you were talking about emotions and before we got into the Henry Cartier-Bresson, uh, but who would you say is your most influential favorite photographer? New or old, past to present, amateur wow. or master? So I have, I have a few photographs on my wall at, in my home. Mm-hmm. And... I have some of my own photographs, um, but the photographs that I have on my wall that are not mine are are two prints that I tr- that I treasure, and they are both Henri Cartier-Bresson pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is the famous um, uh, spiral staircase with the, the person on the bicycle going. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is, is one of his prints of perhaps his most famous photograph of the man leaping over the puddle at the Paris train station, Yeah. Um, which defines the moment, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, if I had to pick one, Ricky, it would be Henri Cartier-Bresson. Okay. Um, but I, as I mentioned, Joseph Karsh mm-hmm. was a big influence for me growing up. My, my father loved Karsh's portraits and we had books of, of Karsh's portraits at, at home yeah. coffee table books that, that I would, that I would look at on a pretty regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're, they're not only uh, amazing portraits, they're technically beautiful prints yeah. in, in the way that Ansel Adams prints are, are, mm-hmm. are technically so amazingly beautiful. Thanks to the zone, uh, the zone system. That he created the zone system, <laughs> and you know what? One, one um, 
One interesting fact about that Henri Cartier-Bresson picture of the man leaping over the puddle mm-hmm. at the train station is um, that photograph, that print, was actually cropped. Um, it, there were elements in that original negative that don't appear mm-hmm. in the print. And there's a huge debate that goes on from time to time about whether it's okay to crop yeah. or not okay to crop. And, you know, obviously, if you asked Henri Cartier-Bresson, his answer was, of course, it's okay to crop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and, and, and I agree with that. I, I think the object is to end up with a print that says what you want it to say. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not talking about photojournalism here. Photojournalism is, a, is an entirely different subject area. Um, and, and as most people would agree, it's not okay to alter a photograph. Yeah, definitely. If it's, if it's for photojournalistic purposes. Mm-hmm. I mean, mild adjustments to exposure, yes. But beyond that, it's not okay mm-hmm. um, to alter elements. So, um, and there have been some, some real uh, controversial examples mm-hmm. of photojournalism photographs that were cropped in a certain way that, um, that changed their meaning. So it's not okay in photojournalism, but outside of photojournalism for artistic purposes, my goal as a photographer is to create an image, create a print that says what I want it to say. Mm-hmm. And for me that it's okay to edit that image, crop that image. Um, and for some people to actually, you know, use, artistic tools to paint things in or combine images that in ways that are artistic. Right. So, so now I'm going to challenge you the great Joel Meyer, Joel Meyerwitz. He has a book called seeing things. It's a child's book. Uh, my favorite Henry Cartier, Cartier Brisson's photo is also the same one with the leaping guy. That one of the first, um, uh, photos in Joel Meyerowitz's book is actually that one and I'm not sure if you knew this but if you did very well on you but there's actually a poster way in the back of a person mimicking the man jumping I can't tell you that I've seen that yep it's I, back I have there. to I have to look again mm-hmm. this is a book that I recommend to everybody it's he wrote it for children to help them dissect photos. And when I read the description, I was like, I need to buy this. It's not even expensive. Uh, my favorite Joel Meyerowitz's photo is actually in there. And he he will introduce details in each of the photos that you've probably seen that, that are iconic that you I can guarantee most people who've looked at these photos hundreds of times have not seen. That sounds like a wonderful book. Yeah. It's got a big yeah. eye, and when every time you open it, it's just like a different element. Uh, <laughs> really amazing book. I always, yeah, it's, it's a book I always recommend to people. So, yeah, isn't it great how how much we can learn? Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter how much we know about photography, there's always more to learn. Yes, there is. I mean that that's that's what keeps it fresh and fascinating for me. Mm-hmm. Take us down your journey 
from starting with Kodak, Canon, Nikon, Canon, Nikon, Sony, and now into Leica. What got you to Leica and I guess the joy, the pleasure, what's the transition like? So my journey to Leica happened late in my life. Mm -hmm. I had a, a dear friend, unfortunately he passed away um, about a decade ago. Um, but I had a dear friend who lived not far from me. Um, we actually met through eBay, mm-hmm. um, because I had, I had pre-ordered a Kodak 14 N digital camera, which most people won't remember. But at the time, um, Kodak, at the time, digital cameras were six megapixels. And Kodak came out with a 14 megapixel SLR uh, based on a Nikon body. So I pre-ordered this camera and it took months and months for Kodak to bring it out. And by the time they had it in the hands of some reviewers, they, the reviewers, they, they said the software is buggy. They weren't crazy about it. So I, I had a reserved place in line for this camera that everybody wanted. So I actually sold my place in line on eBay <laughs> Um, and, uh, it turns out that the guy who bought my place in line lived less than a mile from my home. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we, you know, we discovered that we lived so close to each other. We became really great friends. His name was Ed and Ed at the time I was shooting, I think I was probably shooting Nikon, um, taking sports photos and I had shot SLRs forever. And Ed had a, a wonderful collection of Leica cameras, um, mostly film cameras. And I was over at his house one day, and he said, have you ever shot with a, a, a rangefinder camera like this Leica? And I said, no, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm just an SLR shooter. And he said, well, I want you to borrow this M3 with a 50-millimeter Simicron on it. And shoot a couple of rolls of film and tell me what you think. So I went home with the M3 and I looked through the viewfinder and I saw that little image that you have to line up to get the focus correct. And I saw the frame lines and the fact that I could see outside the frame lines and see what was coming into my frame. And I could shoot it with my right eye and because the viewfinder is where it is, I could leave my left eye open. So shooting with both eyes open. I found that experience to be mind blowing. Just like a Renaissance went off in my head on a totally different way of shooting. And of course it's, it's a film camera. It doesn't even have a light meter built in. Mm -hmm. So you have to either use the sunny 16 rule or, use a light meter of some kind built into your phone or, or, you know, mounted on the camera. You got to use a light meter. You got to manually focus it. And of course you got to compose it manually. And what it did was it slowed me down. Right. So I wasn't just squeezing off frame after frame of digital image. I had to slow down and actually work on each photograph. Mm-hmm. I had to compose each photograph. I had to think about what I was doing. And for me, that was a revelation. And 
that's when I got hooked on like a rangefinder photography. And I started off with an M3, a film camera. And then in 2008, Leica introduced the first M digital camera, the M8. And I put my order in for an M8. Mm -hmm. And you might remember that wasn't even a full frame camera. It, it was, was a, um, a, a, a one crap. It was a weird crop that everyone made fun of because of it. Yeah, it was a 1.3 crop, yeah. right? So, um, so I ordered that camera, and, and I, I was one of the first people to get that camera. And it turns out it had a faulty sensor. Mm. So I had to send it back, and my dealer immediately sent me an, an, a new one. He didn't even wait for Leica to, um, to find out about the faulty sensor. Yeah. And he, by the way, he earned my business that day. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's been my dealer forever. Nice. Right. So he's my guy. Yeah. Um, good friendship. So uh, yeah. And we, and we built a wonderful friendship. So, um, so I ordered an M8 and I shot with the M8 and, um, one of the challenges was that, it, that the sensor was sensitive to infrared light. Mm -hmm. So I, um, you had to put UV IR filters mm -hmm. on the lenses. Otherwise, anything that was a fabric that was black turned out purple. Yeah, I heard about that. Um, a lot of people hated the black. Yeah. And, and uh, what Leica did was they, they ended up giving away free UV IR filters. Mm -hmm. You got two free filters. You bought an M8 camera. Oh. Um, and those are so, expensive, the Leica brand ones. They were. Yeah. They were expensive, but like it, you know, like it was like it, right? So they, they said, okay, we, we get it. We know there's a problem. The, the problem turns out they used a cover glass on the sensor that was too, was too thin. Mm -hmm. um, and didn't filter out the, the IR, IR light, um, which by the way, makes the M8 an amazing IR camera. Yes. That's why I was going to, I was going to ask you that if you ever shot infrared with it. Uh, so I haven't done that, but I have a good friend in Seattle who does. Mm -hmm. And he just puts an IR pass filter on his, on his lenses and he takes infrared photographs with the M8 all the time. Um, makes a great infrared camera. No need to convert. So I got the M8 and I got, then I got the M8 point, M8 point two, mm -hmm. um, which, which was, um, well, I, we don't have to go into the technical details, but I got an M8 point two and then I got an M9 and then I got an M9 P and then I got an M10, and then I got an M10P, and then I got an M11, and you know, so it just goes right. Yeah. Um, and I'm 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 not a collector, right? So if, at one point, Ricky, it got to be really silly. Um, I, at one point, I had 22 M lenses, like M lenses, like one at every focal length, at least at least one, you know, maybe four 50 millimeter lenses, you know. And it, it I looked at my shelf one day, and I said this is ridiculous. Like, why do I have all these lenses? I'm only shooting a small number of them. So I ended up selling a bunch of lenses and, and I realized I'm not a collector. I'm a photographer. Okay. Right now I have a lot of friends who are collectors and have some beautiful gear, but so I'm not putting down collecting, right? Mm -hmm. It just wasn't for me. Um, so that's, you know, shooting that M3 with, with film, that was my Renaissance moment on how I, a completely different way about of approaching photography, a, a totally different way of, of thinking about photography. Mm -hmm. And although I, 
you know, although I kept shooting with SLRs for sports, for example, I, the camera I, I would always reach for would be a Leica M camera when it, when it was a photograph that I wanted to make. Yeah. Okay. Which one would, would you say was your favorite? So it's like asking me which of my kids is my favorite kid. Um, <laughs> we all have one of those, even though we say we can't. I, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I would, I would say, Ricky, there are, there are a couple of standouts. Um, so a camera that I loved using was the M8.2 Safari. So it was the green um, M8.2 camera, and I had a nice brown Luigi case on it and a silver 28-millimeter F2.8 lens. And that camera was such a classic look mm-hmm. that I could go anywhere with that camera, and people would, they wouldn't even know it was digital. Um, so I, it wouldn't attract attention. People would look at it and go, oh, he's shooting an old camera you know, some sort of old film camera. So that, um, and, and the M8 photographs, because the M8 was a CCD um, sensor, there was a look to a CCD image that you don't really get anymore with CMOS sensors. But that was a real favorite of mine, Ricky. Mm-hmm. Um, the camera that I'm most in love with now is the M10 monochrome. Yes. Um, Me too. I picked up, I've had the M9 monochrome. I loved the M9 monochrome. Just loved it. Um, Sold it, bought it again. Um, And then I decided I wanted an M10 monochrome. And I was fortunate enough to find one of the Vetslar M10 monochromes. Yeah. With the Leica engraving on it. And it's, you know, functionally it's the same camera as Mm -hmm. the not Vetslar. But the photographs I'm, I'm getting from that camera are just head and shoulders um, better than the photographs that I'm able to get from many of the other cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm blown away by the, the low light performance of that camera. Um, and in fact, it's so good at low light that I reacquired a lens that I had sold many years ago. Um, I don't know if you remember the, the Tri-Elmar not the wide angle trilomar, but the regular trilomar that was a combination of 28, 35, and 50. Uh, I'm, I was going to ask you if you had that one. <laughs> Not too many people get the, the trilomar. A lot of people get the weight, mm-hmm. right? The wide angle trilomar, yeah. the 1820, 1820, I'm sorry, 1821, no, 16, 1821. Is that, is that less? But the 28, the 28, 35, 50 trilomar. Uh, it came in two versions. They, optically, they were the same, but um, that lens is, you know, the widest it goes is f4, right? On a camera where your max usable ISO is, let's say, 1600 or maybe 800, mm-hmm. like an M9, for example, you know, f4 can be limiting in many ways. Oh, yeah. Um, on a camera like the monochrome, F4 is, you're just getting started. Um, that camera, the usable ISO of that camera is, as far as I'm concerned, 25,000 or even 50,000. 
Um, and so having an F4 lens is no longer a limitation. So I decided to re repurchase that lens, um, on the used market. And, uh, I recently went on a, a trip and it's the only lens I took with me. And the results I got were really, really pleasing to me. Nice. Interesting. I've seen them, but I've, I've never, I guess I grew out of the different focal lengths. I would call it a zoom lens because it has zoom capabilities, but um, I don't know. I've never used one, so I, I don't have much input on it, but I do love, <laughs> I do love my 35 and my 50. And an occasional seventy-five when I need to get real tight shots. Um, but now I, I used to. Be, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I, you know, I used to be really, really um, biased toward the fifty millimeter lens, mm-hmm. and maybe it's it's coming from the SLR world and trying to shoot portraits. Um, fifty just seems to work really nicely on SLRs, mm-hmm. um, but when I started using Leica and maybe it was because my M3 had a a 50 millimeter Cinecron on it, you know, I was shooting a lot of stuff at 50 millimeters. And then I challenged myself to say, you know, am I capable of doing, making photographs with other focal lengths? And, um, I went to the wider, the wider end and I I went to 28. When I got that M8.2, I had the 28 F2, um, Elmer at F2 in silver. And that lens is, is one of the smallest lenses that Leica sold. It's a tiny lens. It renders beautifully, even wide open. And the photographs I was getting, you know, taking street street photography at 28, I was really enjoying those photos. And I was, fortunate enough that I, I was able to find the 28 F one four Similux lens, um, also in silver. And, uh, I picked that up and there's something very magical about that lens. I don't know if you've had a chance to shoot that lens, Ricky, but uh, I've never that, shot any Sumaluxes. Um, if you get a chance, um, borrow, um, borrow a 28 one four, mm-hmm. uh, from Leica. It, it's an astonishing lens. Um, I was, I was so blown away by it that now it's, it's a real favorite of mine to shoot, shoot street wide. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you stop it down, you know, if you're shooting from the hip or, or you're shooting fast and you want to stop it down, yeah. there's something about the, the way that lens renders. That's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, um, having that, 28, 35, 50 with you and flipping to the different focal lengths just by twisting a knob, um, to me was quite liberating when I was taking those photographs, um, recently on my trip. And, um, what's interesting to understand is that that, that lens, that 28, 35, 50, it's not a true zoom lens. It's really a three focal length lens. The wide angle one, the 16, 18, 21 is actually a true zoom. So you can set that lens at any point between 16 and 21 mm-hmm. and it'll, it'll function just perfectly. The 35, the 28, 35, 50 on the other hand, 
has to be locked into one of those three positions. Okay. Or it doesn't work. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. For most people that would yeah. cover all their focal learning necessities. So if anyone's listening, there's your option. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, there's one more benefit. Oh, go ahead. Uh, there's one more benefit to having that lens available to you, which is if you're in, if you're outdoors and you're in cha- challenging situations where the wind is blowing mm-hmm. or it's dusty or it's dirty or it's snowing or it's raining, um, you, you, you've got three focal lengths without the need to change lenses outside. Yeah. And, and potentially get your sensor dirty. That is true. I was, I was in, um, uh, I, I was in White Sands, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- what an amazing location that is. Um, it feels like you're on the moon when you're at White Sands. Um, but the challenge is you don't want to change lenses at White Sands. Um, <laughs> uh, there's, there's all kinds of stuff in the air mm-hmm. that's going to get inside your camera the minute you open that camera. Yeah, danger. Keep it close. Exactly. Keep it close. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. There you go. Uh, weather sealed if you don't have to open your lens. We got it. Well, technically, Ricky, it's not weather sealed. Yeah, I, I know right? that one. None of the M-bodies are. Yeah. They... Um, you know, there's no rubber ring around the back of an M lens, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it, it's true for the SL and for the, uh, obviously for the Q2, that those are, those are weather sealed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one reason I bought a Q2, by the way. Okay. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, but I, I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, plug any of your, uh, I know you said you don't use much social medias, or if you do, you can, websites, social medias, Anything that you own that you would like the listeners to be able to see and view your work? So this may come as a surprise, but I don't like posting my photographs through social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of looking at photographs on social media either. Um, I think that we're too used to looking at a photograph or we've gotten used to looking at a photograph for a couple of seconds mm-hmm. and then moving on to another photograph. Yeah. And for me, you know, uh, my goal isn't how many photographs can I look at? My goal is what can I learn by looking at photographs? Okay. And, and what kind of enjoyment can I get from it? So I may be old fashioned, Ricky. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certainly old, um, but I may be old fashioned. <laughs> no worries. Um, and I, you know, anyone who's interested in my photographs, you know, uh, I, I'm happy to, to share some of them with you that I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, if, and, and you're welcome to email me if you like, um, and, and ask, I'm happy to give you my email address. If, would that be okay, Ricky? Yeah, of course. We'll put that in there. And then, uh, anyone who's listening that is curious, we'll just send them that, that route. So simple enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm happy to, to respond with a link to a gallery that I keep online. Okay. Um, Members only. So thanks for watching. No worries. Uh, it's all for you. Uh, but now I actually want to get into this because I'm really curious. Uh, we are going into like a historical society association. Did I get that correct? No. It, that's what it used to be called. Okay. 
I can explain why the name is confusing, actually. All right. Well, uh, this is going to be your time. I'm just going to be listening. I will have some. I wrote some questions that I have uh, about this. Um, but please give us the history and anything you would like listeners to know about this amazing uh, super secret society that's close to the. <laughs> no, I'm joking. That's just jokes, people. <laughs> And we'll get some tickets in there. Um, but yeah, tell us whatever you'd like us to know about this. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are kind of teetering on that, you know, should I join? Should I not join? I want to know more information. There's a lot of people like yeah. that. They just need that push. Get off the boat. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let us let us know. So, yeah, great. Thanks, Ricky. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really fortunate um, in that I'm currently the president of the International Leica Society. And um, we're a nonprofit. Um, none of us um, you know, earn a salary doing this. We're all volunteers. Um, but the International Leica Society was formed more than 50 years ago. Um, and at the time, it was called LHSA. Mm-hmm. And LHSA stood for the Leica Historical Society of America. Okay. And it really focused on preserving the, the rich history of Leica photography since its early, early days in the beginning of the 1900s. And preserving that history and uh, talking with people about collecting cameras and understanding old cameras and old lenses. And for many years, it was focused on the history aspect of Leica photography. Um, several years ago, we took a look at ourselves and really realized that we were doing a lot more than just talking about Leica history. We were focused on all aspects of Leica photography, um, whether it was the images themselves, whether it was film cameras or digital cameras, whether it was, um, you know, all kinds of photography using Leica's. And we were far more than an an American organization. So we underwent a a name change several years ago and refer to ourselves now as the International Leica Society. And we still have the little logo of LHSA in our our big logo that says International Leica Society. Mm -hmm. But over time, we're, we're moving away from that LHSA logo in, in, and just being the International Leica Society. So we are um, the de facto user community um, for Leica photography. Um, we have a, a wonderful relationship with Leica camera itself, um, Leica AG, the, the, the mothership in Germany, and Leica um, North America as well. And so we... We are a member organization, nonprofit. We have roughly 3,000 members around the world. Um, about just under half of our members live outside the United States. Um, a lot of our members, uh, our, our top countries outside the U.S. include Germany. Big surprise there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, France, the U.K., um, we have a great following in, in uh, the Far East. Um, we have a great following in Japan. 
in Singapore, in Korea, and in China. And we have a strong following in, in Australia as well. Um, so we are truly an international organization. Um, the reason we exist, Ricky, is to help Leica photographers and Leica enthusiasts, Leica photography enthusiasts, um, become the best that they want to become. Mm-hmm. We, we want to help people grow no matter what stage they're at, whether they're just, they've just heard about Leica and they're interested in learning more about what this Leica thing is and this red dot and why, why are people so crazy about them? Um, or they just want to talk about photographs or they're professionals and they're making a living doing this with, with, uh, with Leica cameras. You know, we, we want to be there to help them at every stage of the process. Mm-hmm. And, and so our, our goal is to provide as much help and information as we can. Yeah. And, and also, you know, really foster relationships and, and, and foster friendships. Mm-hmm. So one of the big things we do, Ricky, is um, we meet twice a year in person. So we have uh, what we call the spring shoot, where we, we pick a city and we all come to that city and we have a, a two or three day conference um, in that city and we go out in small groups and we go shoot. And we learn from famous photographers who, who are guest speakers. And we come back and we look at each other's images and we talk about images and we make new friends um, and we learn from each other. And we just got back from our most recent spring shoot, which was in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to the top of Pikes Peak Mountain, 14,000 feet high, um, in a bus. We didn't climb. Um, but, uh, we went to a place called Garden of the Gods, which is an incredible rock formation. Yeah, it sounds amazing. in Colorado. Just amazing. And we had people, you know, we had about 80 people come to that conference mm-hmm. um, and just have a wonderful time with each other and taking photographs and sharing photographs. And uh, we had the direct support from Leica itself, um, where we get to offer what we call Leica on loan. So Leica actually sends a representative with a, a suitcase or two or three full of Leica gear. Yeah. And every morning they set up a table with all this Leica gear and the people who come to the conference can borrow for 24 hours, anything they bring yeah. for free. So, you know, people were borrowing M11. Yeah, I was going to ask how they brought an people M- grab the M11. Oh, they're out. They Shit, brought M- I got to wait till tomorrow. <laughs> I know. Well, they brought M11s, they brought an S3, they, they brought um, several M10s, they brought Q cameras, lots of lenses, mm-hmm. you know, really expensive lenses, SLs, SL2s, SL2Ss. Yeah. So they brought a, a huge range. So that's one of the benefits is you can, like, try the gear and go out, go out and shoot with it. Um, so we just got back from that. that. That was the trip, by the way, where I took my Trielmar lens and only my Trielmar lens. Um, so... And then after the after the that spring shoot is over, we actually print a magazine, uh, uh, a nicely printed magazine, with um, photographs from every attendee in the magazine. Mm-hmm. And as an attendee, you get a free copy of that magazine. So we actually put people in print. Nice. Um, Publish. So so that's our spring event. And then every fall we do our annual meeting and conference, 
And we, we do those in different cities. And so the last time we did it was here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming this fall, it's typically in October. Coming this fall, um, our annual meeting and conference is going to be in Dublin, Ireland. Ooh, Guinness Factory. Have you ever been to Dublin before? It's going to be my first trip to Dublin. Ooh, you're going to love it. So very gothic. We are right? actually we're actually going to do a trip to Guinness. Yeah. So we're going to have a tour of Guinness. Um, but we're going to spend some lovely days in in Ireland, and we have a, a, a line a list of speakers lined up that's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, and direct support from Leica as well. So we're. Uh, one of our speakers is going to be uh, one of, one of the senior executives from Leica, mm-hmm. talking about about gear. Um, but uh, you know that that meeting is going to be phenomenal. And then a year from October in 2023, our annual meeting is actually going to be in Wetzlar, Germany, at Leica headquarters. Yes. So um, I don't know. Have you ever been to Lights Park? No, uh, I've never been to any uh, official Leica locations in Germany, but I have been to Germany multiple times. Okay, so if if you if you ever get a chance to go to Leica Park in in Wetzlar, mm-hmm. um, the the headquarters is a is a wonderful place. Yep. Um, it's a whole series of buildings that architecturally work together, um, and they actually look the the edges of the buildings look like a roll of film. Actually, I've seen it. I've um, the photos. Actually, there's a picture of it behind me. Yeah, I can see you it see too. it in the gray? Yeah, I can. It's very light. Uh, the building. Yeah, yeah. So um, th- there's actually a hotel mm-hmm. right on this property, and and even the room numbers are are done in the same font that is etched into the lenses. Nice. Of Leica, right? So everything about it is Leica. So we 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 get um, you know more than a hundred of our members. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, coming to that event and, um, we get, we get pretty special treatment. Um, we got behind the scenes tours mm-hmm. at Leica, um, watching them, you know, grind the lenses and putting them together. And I, I remember on the last, the last time we were there was, um, it's going to be three years ago. Um, we were on this tour and they were assembling the lenses and there was this plastic bin sitting on one of the counters with a whole bunch of lens elements just laying in the bin, mm-hmm. like touching each other. And we said, what's that? And our tour guide said, oh, those are the rejects. <laughs> so um, anytime we get an element that's not perfect, we just throw it in the reject bin, yeah. right? They said, would you, like, would you like one? So he took this bin and he held it out. And everybody on, on the tour grabbed, so you know, like some like a lens, like a glass, right? So we all had like a glass. Um, it's a really special time. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, you know, we eat good food. We, we talk, you know, we geek out about cameras and photography. Um, and we, and we make, you know, lifelong friendships. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what, that's what the society is really about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm having a, a blast, um, serving my term as, as, as president. Mm-hmm. Um, we just launched a new website last year. Uh, entirely new. Um, we do uh, monthly webinars um, for our members that we record. Mm-hmm. And if you're a member, um, you get to, we have more than two dozen webinars that um, we've done now, uh, about an hour long each. And um, as, as a member, you get free access to those. Um, 
I did a four part series teaching people how to use Lightroom, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's available to members. Um, we have a database of the largest collection of Leica um, information, Leica publications, camera manuals, ads, um, you know, old price lists, all kinds of stuff that we have scanned and indexed into a database. And as a member, you can um, come on the website and do a search on our, on our database. You know, if you bought an M6 camera and you want to know everything there is to know in the world about an M6 camera, um, you can do a search for M6. You'll, you'll get more than a thousand results. Yeah. Um, with the document, you know, with the original documentation. Um, so that's another benefit that we have. Um, our members also, uh, Leica is, is kind enough to offer discounts, mm-hmm. not on new gear, but, um, on repairs. So Leica repairs get discounted, um, to our members and Leica Academy classes, um, also get discounted for members. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have, finally, we've got, um, not finally, but in addition, we have a, a feature on the website called ask an expert. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a question that has anything to do with Leica photography, whether it's, um, you know, how, how do I choose what, what old 50 millimeter lens to buy? Or, um, I picked up this camera. I don't really know what it is. I got it at a garage sale. Um, you know, can you tell me more about it? Or I have an ML 11 and I'm having, a, I'm having trouble doing this. How do I do this? Right. No matter what it is, we have a panel of volunteer experts mm-hmm. and, and email addresses and you can send us an email and within 24 hours, we'll give you a reply. Yeah. Um, and that's something that not even like itself can provide. Um, so, um, so we're, you know, I think we're in a, we're in a unique position, Ricky, mm-hmm. because if you think about other clubs, right. That, that are associated with brands. I mean, think about like cars, for example, you know, people who drive BMWs, there's a BMW club, mm-hmm. right. Or people who drive Porsche cars, there's a Porsche club or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, most of the time when you go to one of those, a local event, you know, for your club, you know, you're not going to get the president of BMW coming to your club and giving you a talk. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas for us, that's, that's happened. Wow. Right. That's happened on many a kid. Um, you know, uh, you, you probably saw the news recently of the most expensive camera ever sold at auction. I have not, but I did see Leica's raising their prices again. <laughs> That's a, I love that response. Yeah. That's so great. So, so the Leica camera that was actually owned by the founder of Leica, mm-hmm. uh, Oscar Barnack, um, created a, a series of prototype cameras in, in the late 20s, late 1920s, 1928. The camera that belonged to him, the prototype, was called uh, a Leica uh, Series Zero, Model 105. And that camera just sold at auction a, a few weeks ago for 14 million euro. Wow. Uh, that's a lot. Now, um, it's, the most, it's the most expensive camera ever sold at auction. Mm-hmm. That camera, by the way, 
before that auction, uh, the the president, uh, the CEO of, of Leica, um, Dr. Andreas Kaufman, came to the United States with that camera to a special event at the Leica store in Los Angeles. And they previewed the camera at, at this special event in Los Angeles. They allowed us to invite a small number of our members to actually come to that event and have dinner with Dr. Kaufman that night and get up close and personal with that camera and with the owner of Leica. And there was no charge yeah. to our members for that. So those are the kinds of things that we're lucky enough to be a part of mm -hmm. by being the, the international Leica society. I like it. Well, if you or Leica ever need a guest speaker, I will make myself available. I'm just throwing that out there. You can have me. I can I'm glad you did. I'm a, I'm a great speaker sometimes. Sometimes. I'm glad you did. That's, I mean, that, that's what um, we're, we're always looking mm -hmm. for people who are not only talented photographers, but also great communicators. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, Ricky, every year, we have a grant. We have a charitable grant. Mm -hmm. And we award um, an up-and-coming photographer, a rising photographer. Um, each year, we choose one rising photographer that, that we, um, who enters a, a competition, is, goes through a series of judge, judge um, sessions. And for the last six or seven years, we've chosen a, a, a rising photographer every year. And um, a couple of years ago, we chose a rising photographer by the name of uh, Anna Maria Gosen. Mm -hmm. And Anna Maria, um, a year after she won our photography grant, uh, Leica itself gave her the Oscar Barnack Award. Nice. Is she, is she the one Germany. that did the, the prison in South America with the Q2? Yes. Oh, yeah. Her photos are yes. awesome. So she, uh, she went to Venezuela mm -hmm. and photographed the horrible conditions inside women's prisons mm -hmm. in Venezuela and Central America and um, documented those and, and was a, a real spokesperson for improving conditions. Yeah. And we love her. We love her photographs. She's actually going to be one of our, we think she's going to be one of our guest speakers in Ireland mm -hmm. coming in October. Um, and sharing more of her images with us. So, by the way, that that grant um, historically has been five thousand dollars in cash mm -hmm. um, for that that grant winner. And as a matter of fact, with the support of like in North America, um, we're we're not only doing that, but this year our grant winner in October will also receive a Leica M camera and M lens. As a gift. Ooh, I'm signing up now. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it's another thing that we were able to do because we have generous members. Yes. Right. So um, we, we're still a nonprofit, but we, we have this philanthropy fund where we can financially support young and rising photographers. Mm -hmm. That's good. You hear everybody go out, support, sign up. Maybe you could 
guys can win. Hopefully, I win. Uh, I'm definitely interested in this because I do want a, a gifted like a body and which we're we're going to be announcing that um, that program this year in in a, in a few weeks, Ricky. Mm-hmm. Um, so take uh, come up to the website um, lhsa.org, mm-hmm. lhsa.org, um, and you'll see you'll see us announce yeah our annual photo grant. And you can see the past winners as well. Perfect, perfect. I was act- I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask how the listeners can find you on the web, and you just had it, lhsa.org. So go listen, go subscribe, become a member. Uh, but you also have your own magazine you mentioned earlier. Uh, describe that for me and the listeners. Uh, who can contribute, how they get published, Things along those yeah. lines, and then I got a real controversial question after. That's not the LHSA, oh, but uh, I think you know some people, and we want we want some. I got questions, and we want the answer. So yeah, here we go. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, please. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, thanks for yeah. Thanks for reminding me. So we have we have a quarterly magazine that we produce called the Viewfinder. So Viewfinder magazine comes out four times a year. And it features a wide variety of Leica photography subjects. Mm-hmm. So articles, uh, there, there are sometimes articles about old Leica gear, sometimes articles about new Leica equipment, um, sometimes articles about um, photo, that are just centered on the photographs themselves. Uh, what's, what's different about it is that, first of all, it's beautifully designed. It's one two um, industry awards for its design, the magazine's design. Um, and the stories that go along with the photographs are, are, are always, they always pair that way. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not just showing images. We're, we're talking about them. We're telling stories. We're explaining those images. Yeah. So um, the magazine, you can join LHSA and get a PDF of the magazine, in which case you're a digital member. Or you can sign up as a print member, and we'll mail you the magazine mm-hmm. uh, worldwide. Um, so a lot of people like the physical magazine um, in, in their hands. Um, a lot of people collect the magazine. Uh, to answer your question about how can I get published in the magazine, uh, the answer is it's really simple. Um, if you have a set of compelling images and the story that goes along with those images that you're, that you're willing to write that story, you can submit your uh, idea for an article with your images right on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a link. If you look at Viewfinder Magazine, there's a link to submit. And that goes to our, edit, our editorial staff. And um, if they like what they see, um, they'll work with you to... Uh, choose maybe the subset of images that that are really great for print and work with you on on getting that article um, published as well. Mm-hmm. So we actually depend on our um, our audience for our content. It's not just it's not just an afterthought. Yeah. We depend on it. So we encourage people to submit. Is there a magic number of photos that you would recommend people to submit? Like, don't go over this many, but don't send us less so, than this. Yeah. So, um, 
we don't want to receive hundreds of photos. Mm-hmm. We, we don't, um, we don't want to be the, the people who are the editors of your photos. Mm-hmm. We want you to be the editor of your photos. So it would be great to see two dozen of your photographs that you feel are the best two dozen of that particular subject. Yeah. And they should, they should all relate to one subject. Mm-hmm. So, so we're not, we don't really do uh, uh, retrospectives of a person and all the photographs they've taken. We, we like to write, we like to do articles about a certain subject. Okay. Like um, here's, you know, I, I went to Tokyo or I lived in Tokyo for 10 years and here are my Tokyo images. Mm-hmm. Like here's my two dozen favorite Tokyo images. And I'm going to tell a story about them. Yeah. Right. That's the kind of article we love. Um, so don't, don't send a hundred images. Um, you know, send us the two dozen best. Okay. There we go. We got it now. So here's the question. Um, there's a lot of grumblings in the Leica community that LFI magazine is becoming kind of algorithm based and their photo selection here for their, uh, coveted <laughs> Leica master shot that they do on their website. Have do you have any inside information or know anybody in the LFI scape world environment community? Is there any explanation we can get on why uh, most of us only thing we can say as concerned like a photographers? It's a marketing scheme, right? Because we all get we want the the instant gratification. We want our photos to be recognized. But me, I'm very, I try to remain bias free. Uh, I stopped submitting because of this, but so this is how I know I'm not biased because none of my photos are on the LFI gallery anymore. But a lot of their photos that they give master shots is very questionable. I'm not saying that they're not good photos, but if we're going to compare it to like photos that they did highlight for like they call it the gallery space, clearly a lot of people like that should have been a master shot, but then you got some. Some, I don't know, I would say not of the same caliber. So it's a great question. Um, I don't have any connection to LFI. Okay. Um, LFI is produced in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole separate team in Germany who are responsible for LFI. Um, I, I like seeing the images that come in LFI. I don't always agree with their editorial choices, um, as, as you've pointed out, but, um, it's a great publication. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't have any, I don't have any connection to okay. LFI itself. Okay. But one thing, one thing we like to do, Ricky, is we like to feature our members images. Mm-hmm. So we have a really, really strong social media presence yeah. on Instagram, um, and on Facebook and on YouTube. Um, so we have, our, our social media presence, especially on Instagram, is really is really strong. Yes. Um, our our hashtag is uh, hashtag like a society. Um, so you can look us up with like a society hashtag like a society, and we do things like um, uh, photograph of the week. Mm-hmm. So we give people a theme, and that changes every month. Yeah. We give we give people a theme. It might be the color blue or it might be clouds, or it might be weather, or it might, you know, whatever that theme might be. And you can submit your photographs for consideration. 
and uh, you know through any of those social media cha- channels, mm-hmm. and believe me, they get looked at. And we we like to choose a featured photograph of the week, and then if you win that photograph of the week, we pub we republish your photograph across all our social media. Channels. Nice. So um, you know we like to feature a lot of our members' photographs, mm-hmm. and and for those people, we we also have older members who are not great social media navigators. Yeah. So yeah, we actually have a page on our website, which republishes our Instagram feed. Nice. So you can come up if you want to see like a whole history of what's been published on Instagram, mm-hmm. you can come to the website and, and take a look at that page and see what's been published. Um, so I don't have an answer for you about LFI. Yeah. Um, but, but if you've got great photographs, you know, we, we at the International Likas, we want to see them. Yes. Um, and we want to consider them for, for Viewfinder Magazine. All right. Well, I'll probably be submitting something soon then. Um, that's just because I like submitting my photos. Um, try to get published as much as I can. Yeah. Uh, I got a couple more questions, and then we'll wrap it up because today's the rainy weather is finally finished, and I want to go take some photos. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I would like to see or would like for you to kind of tell the world uh, up and coming photographer artists any recommendation you deserve you think deserves to be highlighted and seen by the world uh so like i said it could be photographer of any sorts musician artist uh anything you would like to share for anybody any anyone you would like to yeah. highlight correct okay so um this is an advice to photographers and artists or no, no, or, no. Um, like this is my friend Jose. He shoots. Oh yeah. Kind of photos. Uh, this is how you can find them. Okay. So, um, let me mention one more thing about the international Leica society before we leave that. Yeah. That is if you buy a Leica camera and any Leica interchangeable lens or Q camera, mm-hmm. There is a coupon in your box for a free one-year digital membership Ooh, in the International Life Society. Find my box. Okay, so look inside your box. It's a black coupon mm-hmm. with our logo on the front. You know, it's in that package of papers that's in in the part of that box. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a link there you can go to, and your first year of membership with us is free. Okay, so by all means. You know, now now you have no excuse. You have yeah. to sign up. I gotta go find my M10 okay. Mono box. It's in there. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely in there. It's yeah. Definitely in there. So yeah, so definitely sign up. Your first year is free, mm-hmm. um, and we hope we, we we can earn your your loyalty, and you come back year after year. Yeah. Um, getting back to your question, um, I do have a friend. Uh, you know, I mentioned I have this sort of pho- photograph gallery. Mm-hmm. photography gallery in my house. Yeah. You know, gallery is a, is a bit, a bit much. I've got some walls, you know, mm-hmm. where I, where I have my photographs. And I mentioned Henri Cartier-Bresson mm-hmm. as, as a couple of prints that I have. Well, there's, there is actually one other photographer who's on my wall. Um, and he happens to be a good friend and he happens also to live in Seattle. Um, and he's also a, an instructor with the Leica Academy. So his name is Philip Blair, B-L-A-I-R. Okay. So Philip Blair 
is a landscape photographer mm-hmm. focused on uh, the Pacific Northwest United States. And Philip is a unique combination of an artist and a scientist. And the reason I say that is that he has an artist's eye for composition and he has a scientist's understanding of Photoshop. So he, he does all of his processing work in Photoshop Mm -hmm. and, and he, most of his work is in black and white. And I have a print of his on my wall, which he was gracious enough to make for me. That is um, a shoreline. It's a kind of a close rocky beach and the water extending out. And then you can barely see the horizon in the mist. And there's a texture and a feeling and an emotion in that photograph that I, I find absolutely compelling. And, and yet it's not a portrait, like I, I explained earlier. It's a landscape, and it's an absolutely beautiful, serene landscape. Mm-hmm. And, and Philip's work, you can take classes from Philip through the uh, academy, through Leica Academy. Philip's landscape work is something that I, I think is, is truly special. So... Um, Look him up, um, Philip S. Blair. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, look him up on Google or look him up on Instagram. Um, I think his work is phenomenal. Perfect. Got him. Write him now. Then, is there anyone else? So uh, I'm going to mention someone else, um, and it's not because she's a photographer. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So... I'm going to mention someone who, who I refer to as the second most interesting woman I've ever met. The first most interesting, obviously, is my wife. Okay. Um, the second most interesting, I think, is, is my friend Sandra Isert. And let me spell her last name for you. It's E-I-S-E-R-T. Got it. Isert. Sandra Isert also happens to live in Seattle, but that's, that's just a happens. Mm-hmm. She is a photo editor. She's not a photographer. She's a photo editor. Mm-hmm. So a photo editor is someone who knows what makes a good photograph. Now her experience will blow you away. Sandra was the world's first photo editor for the white house in Washington, D.C. Wow. And, and she was photo editor under three different U.S. presidents. Yeah, she's got the credentials. Sandra's also the editor, right? Yeah. She's also the editor of almost 200 books, the photo editor of mm-hmm. about 200 books. She was also the photo editor of the Washington Post, the San Jose Mercury News, and the Seattle Times newspapers. She knows what makes a good photograph and what doesn't make a good photograph. Mm -hmm. And I happened to meet her when I was at a framing store with one of my photographs and I was getting it reframed and she was standing in line behind me and we struck up a conversation and that's how we met. Yeah. 
she's since become a dear friend. And she's actually a member of the board now at the International Lycus Society. Nice. But Sandra took a look at my portfolio of photographs, and which I had printed in you know large format, and I put it in a beautiful portfolio, and I went to her house, and she looked at my photographs, and she said, eh, they're okay. <laughs> the knife to the chest. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Right. Nice. Oh, right through the chest. Yeah. So she said, she said, yeah, I mean, technically they're good, but I, they're just not interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, thus began a journey of mine yeah. <laughs> to improve my photography. Yeah. And Sandra is the one who gave me the challenge to go out and take pictures of people. Because before that, I wasn't really doing that. I was taking, you know, still life. I was taking buildings. I was taking shapes, repeating patterns, you know, flowers, anything but live people. Yeah. Because frankly, I mean, let's face it, taking pictures of people is hard. Mm-hmm. Right? I can say you have to have the more you do it, the easier it gets. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So Sandra said, I want you to just throw away what you've been doing. And I want you to go force yourself to take pictures of people mm-hmm. and then come back and talk to me. Yeah. I'm going okay? to challenge you more and do that with film. The only reason with film is because you have to be more f- hyper-focused with the image you want to make. You said slow down I with agree. your M3. Now you have to really become intimate with that subject. I totally agree with you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, the other person I want to mention is Sandra Eisert. Yep. And she actually does this type of portfolio review mm-hmm. and coaching. Um, uh, she, she does it on, 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 you know, on contract basically. So if you want to contact Sandra, she's got a website that explains what she does. Mm-hmm. And the website is, um, the professional I E Y E dot com. The professional I dot com. She's probably gonna get a lot of like eyeball. Now. Yeah. So go out, go and check out the professional I and see what other famous photographers that she's worked with mm-hmm. say about Sandra. Yeah. And if you really want, if you are really, really interested in being a better photographer and becoming a better photographer, instead of buying another lens, buy some of Sandra's time because she will change your life forever. Yep. Okay. Yep. I got it. I'm going to go check her out now. So thank you for that. Um, and then the last kind of question, I kind of tailor it per person and we really didn't get much into creating street documentary photos, which this podcast is kind of centered around. Instead, we had a nice, lovely conversation about life, love, and like us, which is kind of my tagline in my notes, which is the center. It's the heart, the heartbeat of this podcast. But I want to know, and I'm gonna, like I said, I'm going to tailor it for you, is what does Leica mean to you? Thank you, kind of, sort of, Craig Clark, because he gave me the idea for these question, the last question I always ask, and it's always tailored to people. But what does Leica mean to you? 
what does Leica mean to me? Leica, the brand, Leica, the cameras, Leica, the community. We're going to go with... Um, or all of the above. We'll go with all of the above. So for me, the thing that sets Leica apart in the world is the the unswerving passion to create and share images that matter. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not just the creation. It's not just the, the tool. It's the, it's the photography. It's why we focus on like a photography, not like a cameras. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the people, it's the passion and dedication of the people from the person who paints the little black edge around the lens element and hand assembles that into a lens to the person at the repair counter who you, you bring your camera there and the, the camera's 75 years old and they have the screw you're missing, you know, for that camera or the, the people who are in the stores, the Leica stores who, you know, they're, they're not there because they're making a fortune doing that. They're, they're there because they care about the images and they care about the people making the images. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like in North America has a, a marketing campaign that's running this year. And it's actually going to be the, the theme of our photo grant this year as well. And that theme is the world deserves witnesses. The world deserves witnesses. I think Leica photographers in many cases are the people witnessing our world. They're recording what's going on in our world for posterity. And they're sharing that in a community. And so it's important. It's not just a hobby although it can be just a hobby. But I think the more you get into Leica photography, the more you realize that you carry a sense of responsibility, mm-hmm. that you're there no matter what kind of photo- photography you do, you are a witness to the world. And these, some of these moments will never come again. But you're there with your camera. You're supported by equipment that will never fail you. You're supported by an organization that really cares about your success. You're supported by other photographers that, that have a similar mindset. Um, and that's, I think, what sets Leica apart from being just a camera company. That's what it's about for me. Yeah. It's about the people. It's about what we do together. I agree. Definitely. I love your question. I I like talking to people and I, this one I can honestly say this this whole conversation was just completely uh it was nothing in between us like I wasn't reading off of a sheet with the typical questions that I would ask somebody else so uh yeah I just it was really nice and I felt like we we spoke so much highly of the brand that that was the question we, that needed to be asked so I appreciate your answer. It was really great. And thank you for that. 
and like I said, that's the last question I always ask. But now I like to give you the opportunity to ask me questions and I will answer the best I can. Wow. Okay. Um, so, you know, Ricky, you, I think you and I have something in common, which is, I think you, you came to like a photography fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Um, having been a, a photographer for a lot longer than that. Yes. Um, I, I would love to hear what Leica means to you. How has Leica changed you as a photographer? I see the world differently. I'm that witness. The world deserves witnesses, and I, I'm one of them. Uh, I can tell you now, we all, I, and this is a very common thing. A real photographer knows the camera is but a tool. Right, but this tool helps you see the world differently, right? It forces you to become the most creative person you can be. Like nothing else matters except for capturing the moment that means the most to you. And I've noticed since I've become a like a person is that. I've been capturing all the moments that mean the most to me instead of just another photo. Like you said, your friend said, eh, it's okay. You know, I could look up at a lot of my old photos. Some, they might be some good ones. You know, there's always those ones that you take that, that are like really good. But for the most part, like I get what I want exactly how I want it, how I saw it, how I felt I get the emotion. And I think it's because we connect so well together. It's it's not mindless. It's not a mindless tool. Like you actually have to do the work. Yeah. I can, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It's it's interesting, you know, these cameras are some of the most technical technologically advanced tools in the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, these, the M, the M11, the SL2S, the Q2, I mean, these are, these are the S3. These are, you know, technological monsters, right? But that doesn't, they don't allow the technology to get in the way of telling the story. Right? Yeah. When you look, you know, a lot of people have said, Hey, when is Leica going to come out with an M camera with an electronic viewfinder built in? Go buy a food. And if you <laughs> if you ask the people at Leica, right, some of them will say probably we'll never do that, mm-hmm. right? Because the rangefinder itself, which by the way is very hard to make and very expensive to make. And assembled by hand, right? The rangefinder itself defines the M camera. It is the it is the definition of an M camera. It is. And and as you and I have have talked about, that the M camera I think is is the the distilled essence of of Leica photography. Mm-hmm. Um. So, uh, I have another question for you. Oh, before you go, I, I do want to say, because it just came to my mind, uh, comparing Leica to other camera brands, right? 
when I first got into street photography, I came across Magnum Photography, like the organization. I never heard of it ever before. You know, I'm not ashamed to admit it. That's just, it's the truth. And when I first came across Magnum, I was looking at their photos and I couldn't understand them. I didn't know what they were trying to tell. Right. But now I can look at them and I can see the purpose. For me, like comparing, you know, like a cameras to other ones, they're the magnum of camera brands. If you don't understand it, you don't know the purpose until you finally <laughs> understand it. That's a great analogy. I had I had not heard that analogy before. It's all it's all in here. But I think it I think it's totally valid. Yeah. I think it's totally valid. And and for your listeners, if you don't know what Magnum photography is, Magnum photos, go find out. Yeah. It's a wonderful place to, to see images that matter. Yeah. It really is. So I have, I have another question for you, yep. um, which is, uh, you know, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that like a Europe is, is probably going to increase prices pretty soon. We, we all, we all know, or at least we think we know that Leica cameras are expensive. Yeah. So how, what would you recommend to a photographer who's not a professional who wants to get into Leica photography, but is, you know, is not ready to lay down, you know, a lot of money for a new M11 and a new M lens. What would you recommend? There's a couple. Are you asking what what camera I would recommend as an entry? I I would say what approach should you take if you want to start to get into Leica photography? I think everything's the gateway to the M. No matter where where you start, you're going to want to end up in the M. Uh, I would probably recommend trying the, the, the compacts. The all in the point and shoot ones that they have, the premium ones. Um, I have. I've, I've, I mean, I've only been into M, so I've, I, I can't really ex- explain the approach other photographers can do. Um, well, would you, would you say, uh, um, to, 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 would you say um, maybe try and find a used M film camera? Definitely, I, I will say. M used M cameras are probably your cheapest way in. However, with the rising cost of films and depending on if people want to stay in film, it probably probably be cheaper just to go straight digital if people are only interested in digital. Uh you you'll still get the same shooting experience because everything's full manual um minus the ISO. Uh but the shooting and creating an, uh, an amazing image is still the same process. So there is the film route. Uh, I would recommend it. I started film and that just kind of led me down to the M10 monochrome, with, which is all I need. Um, I kind of feel like I'm not answering your question correctly here. Well, I ask it, Ricky, because I get this question a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have, I don't have seven or $8,000 to no. spend on a, on an M11. I can't, I, you know, I, I don't have 
five or $6,000 to spend on a lens. Um, so I often say if you, you know, your point about film is a good one. You know, the rising cost of film. Yeah. Um, I often tell people, you know, try to find a used camera, mm-hmm. um, you know, from a reputable source, you know, eBay is not always your, you know, your best source for that. You know, you might go to a dealer, you know, who, who carries like a, mm-hmm. and who stands behind them, um, and try to find a used M eight or maybe a used M nine, um, for a few grand, a couple grand. And then, um, you can, because the M mount hasn't changed since 1956, you can often find old M lenses, um, either on eBay or at dealers or garage sales, um, that perform beautifully that you can put on your modern M M digital camera Mm -hmm. and spend just a few hundred dollars on the lens. Um, you know, the, the Voidlander lenses, the whole series of Voidlander. They're amazing. They are. I mean, Cosina Voidlander, that's a Japanese company, right? That's Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're in Okinawa now, right? Yeah. Um, so that's a Japanese company that's been in the business for a very long time. A long, long, Um, more than most people, longer than most people think they have. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and there are, are other three lenses as well that, um, you know, that, that are new that fit on the M mount mm-hmm. that are, that are very fine lenses yeah. um, and great and great ways to get started. Um, so that's, I often get the question, you know, I, I I'm not rich. I, no. I, I can't afford, you know, the latest and greatest, but there are ways to get started. Yeah. I think, okay. Now I'm understanding more properly. The CL was probably, I would think the best way in small, compact. I agree. Yeah. It's a crop. It's not full frame, but I mean, if you're not a professional grade where you need a full frame camera, I think the CL would probably be the best entryway. And the CL, um, you know, the CL takes the TL lenses, mm-hmm. um, and those are those are beautiful, beautiful lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a CL. My favorite lens for the CL was the twenty three millimeter f two, mm-hmm. which on that camera is the same as a thirty five. Uh, with the crop, um, that's like a 35 Simicron, which for the M is $4,000. Um, but for the CL, you know, that lens was maybe 1500 bucks. Um, the CL is no longer, um, being sold by Leica as a new camera, but you can find great examples on the used market and it takes, it takes absolutely beautiful pictures. Um, so great, great suggestion Mm -hmm. on that. I wanted a CL before I got a an M M10, and I couldn't find one that I I wanted. That's kind of not true. I kind of I wanted the M, and I didn't look as hard for the CL. And <laughs> the one place that I did find one wouldn't ship to Okinawa, so that just kind of defaulted me to find an an a, a hyper focused on buying yeah. the M. So. The the other um, the other option I think people have is the original Leica Q. Yeah. Um, not the Q two, but the the, the original Q. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful camera. Um, you know when that camera came out, I I think I misunderstood it. Um, I I I underestimated that camera, and I said to myself, you know, it has a fixed twenty eight millimeter lens. It's a twenty. They call it a twenty eight Sumalux. It's an F. F one seven. 
And I said to myself, well, I already have an M camera and I have a 28 millimeter lens. Why do I need a Q? And that was true until I actually picked up a Q and I started shooting it and learned what a special camera that is. Um, and then with the Q2, they added weather sealing mm -hmm. and they increased the sensor to a 47 meg megapixel sensor. And they increased the dynamic range and the low light performance. And it has a macro mode and it is an astonishing camera. Um, and so I had to buy a Q2 and uh, I often go out with both my M and my Q2 and I use them interchangeably. Okay. I've, I've only touched a Q2 mono and it was very tempting, but I couldn't buy it. I, I would never, <laughs> I would never use it cause I always grab my M10 mono. Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I think I know people who have both because they, they love them. Um, but I agree with you for me, I have the M10 mono. So my Q2 is a color Q2. Mm -hmm. So I, I often go out with the M10 as my monochrome camera. Yeah. And my Q2 is my color camera. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Any other questions for me, sir? So you've got this podcast going, and I'm really, I'm really pleased that we were able to meet through a mutual friend. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I want to wish you all the success in the world with this. Thank you. Um, but what is, uh, what's your dream, Ricky? What, I know you're serving in the military as well. Um, what, what's, your, what, what's in the future for Ricky? Uh, once I retire, I would like to travel a path very similar to a Phil Penman. So, uh, like an ambassador and if I make an ambassador, I do, if not, I'm not hurt in any ways, but this is just a goal. Uh, teach classes, travel around the world, make photographs, publish a book. Uh, so definitely a path similar to a Phil Penman. Hmm. Well, I, I, I hope you achieve all of those goals. Um, I don't think there's anything standing in your way. Well, thank you. So. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Sounds like a great life, Ricky. Yeah, it has its challenges. It's definitely uh, very busy and time consuming, but I enjoy it. It's definitely one of the best chapters I've started writing. So here we are. Fantastic. So, uh, thank you once again for this great recording. I had a great time, lots of information and throwing, um, giving the listeners valuable information as well on how to become members of your super secret Illuminati, uh, community. <laughs> That's just jokes, by the way. They are not affiliated to any of those, uh, things I just mentioned. That's just me being me. Uh, but yeah, I just want to say thank you once again and... I just want to say have a great day to the listeners and thank you for tuning in and listening like a street photography. Collective. Ricky, yeah. Ricky, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you inviting me on, on the show. Mm -hmm. And, um, just one more time, lhsa.org. Mm -hmm. Um, come and find us, come and find me. And I look forward to meeting lots of people here. So thanks again, Ricky. I really appreciate it. Uh, no worries. Thank you. And you're welcome. So, have a great day. Thank you for listening.